In the book of James, there is a theme that runs through the book. It's relatively easy for me to see as I study, and that is the theme of actually doing what one professes. To live in such a way that is consistent with what we say, that is a tremendous challenge. You see, hearing God's Word and talking about God's Word should never substitute doing God's Word. To say that in a practical way is, could be said that a person is not kind if they do not do kind things. A person is not hospitable unless he practices hospitality. And a person is not righteous if he does not show righteousness in his life. An individual is not Holy Spirit-filled unless the fruit of the Spirit is evident in that believer's heart, in his daily life. Your life and what you do and say is a clear, a clear testimony, a statement on what is most important to you. The things that are most important to you are evident by the things that you do and the things that you say. And the book of James, as we've already discovered in chapter 1, is very practical and cuts right to the chase. Perhaps more so than most of us are completely comfortable with, um, I being one of them. And it is very hard. It is difficult to study the book of James without being deeply convicted. Today's subject in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, is certainly not an exception to that. I've entitled the sermon, The Poison of Prejudice. <clears throat> Prejudice, according to the dictionary, is an unfavorable opinion or a feeling that is formed beforehand many times without knowledge, thought, or reason. It's a preconceived opinion or a feeling, either favorable or unfavorable. Prejudice is unreasonable feelings, opinions, and attitudes, especially of a hostile nature, regardless, regarding an ethnic, racial, social, or religious group. Synonyms are words like favoritism, or partiality, or discrimination, or snobbery. The King James Version frequently uses the word respective persons. <clears throat> now all of us know that some sins are more conspicuous, more overt, that means obvious than others. Public drunkenness, for example, or use of foul language. Anybody that is in the presence of 
a person who is drunken can see or tell that the person is under the influence. When you are in the presence of a person who is using foul language, you, you can hear, it's easy to discern. Other sins, however, are much more covert, much more secret. much more hard to prove. And the sin of prejudice certainly comes into that category. Sort of like sins of jealousy or bitterness, unforgiveness. Secret sexual sins and those kinds of things hide very, very well. And typically, it's something that we wouldn't know, perhaps, even that a person is failing in a particular area unless they would actually confess or tell you about their internal struggle. I mention this today because of what I read in James chapter 2. Maybe I have it wrong, perhaps, but my sense is that in 2018... I think one of the most secret sins of all may well be this sin of prejudice, partiality, discrimination, snobbery. It leads to many, many other sins that are directly connected. It can't be seen or smelled or touched. And part of that is because we humans are sort of wired to deny that such a thing exists in our lives. We're very much in denial of the tendency that we have to treat some people badly while simultaneously treating other people much better. The sin is not only secret, but it is also sinister. It's hard to think of a sin that is more wicked or more contrary to the will of God, at least from my opinion as I studied this chapter, and how it goes right into the face of God's doctrine, the the theology that God has in his scriptures. Feelings of superiority about oneself or about one's friends or a certain class of people while simultaneously having condescending thoughts toward people who are different from us. We look at those whose skin color is different from ours and we conclude that for that reason alone they deserve less respect or less honor. Or we look at the way a person dresses Perhaps they're particularly unkempt, or maybe conversely, very um, highly dressed or overdressed for some way or another. We inwardly turn up our noses at people who are less sophisticated than we think they should be, whether it's because of their um, education or their lack thereof. We secretly harbor feelings of ill will toward people who 
perhaps don't or not able to hold the job that we think they should have or could have, or perhaps it's a result of a job that they were denied. And many times in 2018, we deal with the same challenge that the brothers here in the book of James dealt with. The brethren, the brethren in the church, the brothers and sisters in the church that James writes to, and we express favoritism on, in the area of finances. How much money a person has, or conversely doesn't have, or how much money we think they could have, <clears throat> or should have, for whatever, <clears throat> for whatever reason. James pulls no punches in addressing that particular subject, the subject of partiality, here in this letter, chapter 2 of James. He has some fairly harsh and pointed things to say about people who are prejudiced, who show partiality. And it's the most normal thing, I think, carnally left to ourselves, we are wired to want to elevate ourselves. It's a form of pride that has come into our lives as a result of sin. <clears throat> so we elevate ourselves. And we have classes and categories and boxes. We make them many times. God does not. We're guilty of this. Those of us who are more traditional are guilty of this. Those of us who are a bit more non-traditional or maybe a bit, bit more progressive deal with this as much as any, as much as anyone. And the list could go on and on. Maybe we live on the wrong side of the tracks or on the wrong side of Route 23. But we have it. It's a contemporary teaching. It's something that we have right in our midst, in our culture here at Weavertown. This is something that's practical. We need to learn how to deal with this. <clears throat> and that is my goal for myself and for all of us who are under the sound of my voice. <clears throat> here in James, in chapter 4, he defines partiality and he says, he calls it evil thoughts. In verse 4. In verse 6, he talks about despising others. And in verse 9, he says that partiality is committing sin. And that those who indulge or find themselves caught in the snare of partiality are transgressing. And he goes into some detail about that. Why is it? Why is the sin of partiality such a poison? Why is it such a grievous thing to hold prejudice, partiality, discrimination in our hearts, and to treat others that way? The first thing we see is that it insults the character of God himself. Prejudice insults the character of God himself. In the Old Testament, for example, st 
starting in the book of Leviticus and perhaps even sooner than that, I've just picked out some of the verses that especially talk about prejudice and warnings against prejudice. And you can see in some of these verses where it's directly stated that it is based on the character of God himself. The reason we should not be prejudiced is because it is an insult to the character of God. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter 117, you shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and so on. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. Proverbs 24, verse 23. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. Proverbs 28, 21. To have respect of persons is not good, for for a piece, a piece of bread that man will transgress. <clears throat> and there's more. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11. There is no respect of persons with God, pulling out part of that verse. In Acts chapter 10, where you have the account of Peter ministering or evangelizing Cornelius in his house, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nature, nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. God shows no partiality. And the word translated respective persons here in James chapter 2 verse 1 is the same Greek word that's found in Romans chapter 2 and also in Acts chapter 10. God shows no partiality. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 you have the teaching and the instruction of employers or slave owners would be the correct term there in Ephesians and servants or slaves, employees. And it appeals to masters to treat their employees with dignity because of this very principle that God is not a respecter of persons, and therefore neither should we. <clears throat> to discriminate on the basis of social factors or racial factors and solely considerations that are solely external is to violate and insult the character of God. How we treat others, whether it's with honor or dishonor, respect or disrespect, based on something that is solely external, is the poison of partiality. In verses 1 to 7, James gives an illustration of partiality and and uh, prejudice. The scenario that James describes here in the book in these opening verses is sort of easy to understand. Two men walk into an assembly on a given Sunday morning and the ushers 
take a look at the man that walks in the door, they size him up, they put him in a category or in a class, they put him in a box, and they seat him in the auditorium according to the external appearance of the man that walks in the door. They do this for the rich man, and they do it for the poor. It's not only one or only the other. They are both partiality. They are both prejudice. <clears throat> so it's important that we don't draw the wrong conclusions from this passage. And before I go further, I want to point out some of the things that I feel James is not saying. Number one, James is not saying that we should ignore the rich as if they had no business being at a corporate worship assembly. He is not saying that wealth disqualifies a person from being present in an assembly. He is not saying that Christianity is only for the poor. And we have to be careful how we discriminate. It's easy for us, especially in 2018, to only think of certain people as being discriminated against, or to think of only certain classes. It's just as easy for us to, it's just as partial or just as prejudiced to do it in one direction as it is the other. You follow what I'm saying? We should not ignore the rich. We also need to remember that James, James is not saying that we should falsely pity the poor, that we should be prejudiced to poor people, in other words, another way of saying that, that just because a person is poor, we treat him or her to some sort of elevated status. There is no inherent virtue in poverty, nor is there any inherent vice in wealth. <clears throat> also, James is not denouncing, James is not saying that there is virtue in poverty, nor is there inherent vice in wealth. He is not discounting proper boundaries or discernment. <clears throat> I want to be understood. I don't want to be misunderstood as I say this. But there are times where discrimination, at least in the truest form of its meaning, is necessary. This passage is not telling us, is not teaching us that we make no boundaries in our lives ever, proper healthy boundaries. Nor is it telling us that we discern, that we make judgments or decisions, discernments, whatever word you want to use there, for ourselves and for our lives. It is simply saying that partiality comes into play when we make those discernments and we make those judgments and we make those boundaries based solely, only on external things. And the fifth one goes along with that same idea where it says that we should not withhold honor. This passage in James is not teaching us that we should withhold honor from whom honor is due. 
For instance, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 29, Paul has some very strong words of honor and affirmation for his friend Epaphroditus. And you've noticed, haven't you, when you've read, read the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, often toward the end of the epistle, there is sometimes almost an entire chapter where Paul is throwing bouquets or handing out bouquets to people that have blessed him or have been a blessing in some way or another. James is not teaching. The teaching here in James chapter 2 is not saying that we withhold honor from whom honor is due. So don't be afraid to congratulate somebody who has done well. Don't be afraid to recognize someone for an accomplishment. Don't be hesitant to point out to others the spiritual growth of a particular person. And conversely, I think the same could also be true. We should be close enough and conversant enough that there are times where we come alongside each other and we say, buddy, you know, here's a better way to walk. And those sorts of things. It's not saying that we make no discernments or no proper healthy boundaries of any kind. <clears throat> the teaching here in James chapter 2 is not suggesting that we come to church in ratty clothes or unkempt in some way. Nor is it in and of itself criticizing those who come to church well-dressed. Let's take a turn now and look just a little closer at the poor and the rich. One of the questions I had as I studied this, and that is the question, are these people, is the story that James giving, is giving here in chapter 2 an actual story, or is it some kind of hypothetical story for the purpose of writing the letter? I have no way of knowing, obviously, but I lean toward the side that it may have been an actual story. I think James is the kind of person who sees something that wasn't right and he couldn't remain silent about it. So the phrase that's used here to describe the wealthy man, he comes in, he's wearing a gold ring. The Greek word, words, phrase would say that he was gold-fingered, which could imply that he actually had a ring. It could mean that he was very well-to-do. In other words, we say that uh, we use the term, everything he touches turns to gold. That would sort of be the word picture that's used here. It was a man who was accomplished, who had a reputation for being accomplished. It was a man who had a, who had a reputation for doing things well and correctly. It was a man who everything he touched turned to gold. He was gold-fingered. This is the only place that that word is actually used here in the New Testament in the Greek. Bling doesn't count for something in the kingdom of God. So why are we inclined to behave, to conduct ourselves as if it does, as if there is something inherently valuable about being wealthy? <clears throat> One reason, I think, that our carnal, our unrede the unredeemed part of us, tends to treat poor people poorly may be 
because we know that those people are unable to return something for us. Sometimes the reason that we don't reach out to people who are of a different socioeconomic status than us is because we realize sometimes almost subconsciously that they cannot return the blessing. A reading I came across as I studied here. Greatness in a man or woman is seen or measured in the sacrifice and love and generosity that they display toward those that are completely unable to return any personal good whatsoever. You see, that changes the picture. And sometimes the reason that we are partial, sometimes the reason that we make distinctions and discriminations and categories and boxes is because of whatever we carry pride that we carry inside of us, knowing that if we do something for someone, the favor will be or could be returned. <clears throat> Reasons that we should not be prejudiced. I see some things, some reasons given here in the text, and I'm going to try to stick as close to that as I can. First of all, prejudice and partiality are inconsistent with our faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. I've already referred to this somewhat. But don't overlook how James in chapter 1 describes Jesus. He does not only say, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons, but he adds something there. He says, the Lord of glory. And I think there's something there for us to learn. The answer at the heart of prejudice is the idea of glory many times. I've already alluded to that. We do something, either treat somebody poorly or treat somebody extraordinarily well because of the glory that is coming to me or the glory that we feel is taken away from us in some way or another. It's stooping below our dig dignity, our level of value that we place on ourselves. But James chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, appeals to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. It is not me that's the Lord of glory, even though sometimes... I am tempted to think of myself in that way. We crave glory from others. And we strive, we, we go to great lengths sometimes to avoid the loss of that glory, right? So we show partiality or we give preferential treatment based solely on what that person provides for us or does for us in some sort of way. And that, James says, I believe, is an undermining of the glory that belongs to God, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> James wants to see that if we know and love and trust in all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we won't be controlled. When we come to the understanding of who Jesus is and what he is and why he is what he is, 
we won't be craving for that human praise or that acceptance that sometimes dominates our social lives. So ask yourself, why is it that you seek the favor? Why is it that you seek the approval of the powerful or the wealthy people and you avoid association with people who you mistakenly believe are beneath you in some way? Think of it. Why is it that you feel drawn to one group and repelled or repulsed by another? If you genuinely know who Jesus is and why he is what he is, we can walk in daily confidence, knowing that God created us for his purpose and we're part of that glory. And it changes how we view people, causes us not to have prejudice in our lives. Secondly, prejudice is insensitive to the church's calling. Look at verse Look at verse 2 to 4. James goes into fairly extensive length teaching or giving the illustration perhaps of something that took place in the service on a given Sunday at the church where James attended and the church where these brothers, he calls them. Two times in these verses, he calls them brothers. Something that happened, favoritism, showing favoritism based on the idea of financial status and well-being. Prejudice is inconsiderate of God's choice, number three. In verses five and six, James makes the point that in rejecting the poor, many times we are actually discriminating against the very people that God wants to honor. And I found this very interesting numerous times in Scripture. There is a very soft spot in the heart of God for people who are poor. In the law, for example, in the Old Testament, there were large portions and large and repeated sections that described how poor people should be treated and how things should be leveled out and how things should, how um, condemnation that's given to people who are in positions of status and wealth and the responsibility that they have to not take advantage of the poor. We see it in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and numerous other places where those leaders got particularly aggressive. I'm going to use that word with people, with rich people who were taking advantage of the poor. And there were some strong measures that were taken to return back to the idea that poor people are somebody that are special. There is a tender, a tender spot in the heart of God for poor people. I've picked out just a few of those verses. In Luke chapter 7, verse 22, I think sort of sums up some of the basic teaching on this. Jesus Answering, said unto them, Go your way and tell John what you've seen, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And here's the part. To the poor the gospel is preached. You know, when we're going through hard times, we realize, we become aware, if we haven't been before, how that we need God. And there are many, many times, many experiences and testimonies in our lives 
that would make us think and remind us that we are actually in a better position to receive God's grace when we are poor. Because when we're rich, we feel like we have it. We don't even need God in those, in those situations. And I think that James is confronting that very teaching, that very attitude. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, He that oppresseth the poor and re- reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. Proverbs 22, 22 to 23, Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. That's relatively strong teaching. And the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't think I'm going to take the time to turn to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 31. Basically, it's the familiar passage to many of us that says that there are not many mighty are called, not many rich, not many noble, but it's poor people. It's poor people that the gospel is, well, the gospel is for all people, but it's the poor people who are more inclined to receive it, to hear it. And it's a reflection on the attitude of the noble and the mighty most times, if not always. God does not love poor people more than he loves rich people. It's just that more times than not, the poor are the ones who are eager to reach out for God's rescue. Fourthly, prejudice is inappropriate considering the conduct of the rich. James, like I said, is so practical. And here in this context... He goes perhaps even a little further, like I said, than I would be completely comfortable with. But he he calls the conduct of the rich into view here. As if he's talking to the poor people in in the assembly. And he says, seriously, who, who who are the ones that are typically oppressing you? Who are the ones that are dragging you in the court? Who blasphemes and speaks with contempt about the worthy name of Jesus by which you are called? It's the rich people, right? Because they have what they need. They are self-made. They're ready to go. They don't need Jesus sometimes. But it's the poor who are being oppressed. It's the poor who are being dragged into court. It's the poor who are being spoken about with contempt, he says. It's inappropriate considering the conduct of the rich. Fifthly, prejudice is indifferent to the character of the law. I've already referred to this somewhat, but in verse 8, James expounds further on that point. The royal law used here, the term used here in the King James Version is basically the golden rule. We're more familiar with that, the golden rule. So when I talk about the golden rule or the royal law, I'm talking about the same things. You see, in the Old Testament culture, there were specific rules, laws in place to sustain, to keep the balance and uh, to correct the balance between rich and poor, and to, to uh, restore and to um, Equalize, and especially the idea of generosity is, is widely talked about in the Old Testament law. 
at its very foundation, the Old Testament law emphasizes the royal law, the golden rule, treating others as you wish to be treated. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. The Ten Commandments basically cover this exact same thing. The first four of the Ten Commandments talk about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other six basically talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the foundation and the basis of the law. Jesus took it to an even higher level on the Sermon on the Mount and throughout his earthly ministry. The teaching and foundation of the epistles and the early church was to live like Christ loved us. To exercise love, to exercise social life, to do social life like Christ did. To love like Christ loved. The teaching of the Good Samaritan captures this perhaps as good as any parable or story that Jesus gives. You see, the teaching of the Good Samaritan is that loving our neighbor does not leave him like we found him. That's maybe my interpretation or my version, but I think it's one of the strongest points of the teaching of the Good Samaritan. We don't leave people like we find them. Loving our neighbor is to point him in a better direction. Loving our neighbor is pointing him in a direction of healing and recovery. Doing what is needed for the ultimate betterment. Helping the person to make better use of the resources that he's been given. That takes on different forms at different times. I don't think there's a particular template that you can press over any or all situations. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, it involved sacrifice. Remember, the Samaritan got off his donkey. He put the wounded man on his own donkey and walked. He used the oil and wine that he had used for his purposes and poured it out on the one who was injured. Probably a Jew. And probably a person who under normal circumstances would not have been particularly willing or particularly enjoyed getting service from a Samaritan. And verses 9 to 11 here in James, the teaching is that the royal law, the golden rule, is the foundation for all of the Word of God. It is the continuous thread through all of Scripture. And further, to violate this law is to violate all, to miss all of the gospel. That becomes very serious. The illustration, at least as I see it, is that of hanging something precious, let's say from the ceiling on a chain. Let's say the chain has ten links. That precious thing is hanging suspended from the ceiling. You don't want it to drop. If five of those links fail, it falls to the ground, right? How about if one of those links fail? The item drops to the floor, just the same. And that's the illustration that he uses. 
If we offend in one point of the royal law, we're guilty. It's the same as transgressing in all. It's the continuous thread through Scripture to violate the law, the, the royal law, is to become a transgressor of all. <clears throat> it's hard to miss in this particular passage how that prejudice, discrimination, and partiality makes a person a transgressor. It's just as clear as could be. To be prejudiced is to be guilty. The sixth and final point is that prejudice is ignorant of the future judgment. Ah, you see, there's judgment coming. Judgment day is coming. It's coming for all of us. And in the text here, there are three areas that I see in which we will be judged. In verses 12 and 13, you see it there? Our words will be judged. The ushers that seated those men on that particular Sunday revealed what was in their hearts by the words that they said. Notice in verses, verse 2 and verse 3, they used words. And words, the words they used to the men, to the visitors, to the regulars, I don't know, that came in on that particular Sunday, the words they used revealed the condition of the attitude that was going on in their heart. Condescension to the poor, admiration of the wealthy, based on appearance alone. Then he says further, not only will our words be judged, but our actions will be judged. The New Testament is clear that the judgments that believers come into, the judgment that believers come into is a judgment of our works. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in further sermons. The believers, the judgment that believers come into is a judgment of what they have done, about what they have known. We cannot sin lightly and serve faithfully, is another way of saying that. Thirdly, the third thing we see that's judged here, a little bit more obscure, and that is that our attitude will be judged. Our words will be judged, our actions will be judged, and our attitude will be judged. Showing mercy or withholding mercy is the theme, is what James talks about here. Reveals a thinking pattern. It reveals something that we have conditioned ourselves toward, where we cozy up to one group or class of people, and we resent or discriminate, we use prejudice toward another kind of people. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, sobering words, reminds us that nothing is hidden from his sight, God's sight, but everything is naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows our attitudes. We might be able to fool some people. We might be able to hide it from some people. But our attitude comes out. Sooner or later, we'll be known for who we actually are. 
In James chapter 1, verse 25, in the last sermon we looked at this, about how it especially calls the Word of God the law of liberty. I thought about that some. I didn't talk about it in the last sermon. But I find it curious that the Word of God is called the law of liberty. Many of us would think about that description as an oxymoron, wouldn't we? Law and liberty used to describe the Word of God. We tend to think of it as either one or the other. The Word of God is the law of liberty. But in chapter 2, verse 12, he uses that same term again to describe the judgment that we come under. It is the law of liberty. We are judged by the Word of God. And that Word becomes our judge. We're judged by the law of liberty, brothers and sisters. The Word of God is our judge. As I close now, I remind you again that James' point on almost every subject in this book is that we demonstrate the reality of our faith by the way that we live. We demonstrate the reality of our faith by the way that we live. And those who are changed by the grace of God should more and more be progressing into the realization that God has shown mercy to all of us. There is not a single one of us that comes outside of the scope of the mercy that God intended for us. And what we do here on our lives, the accolades and the accomplishments and any other thing that is solely external does not put us into God's grace in some way or another. I know that every single one of you know that. But yet, I need to be reminded of that. God's grace is for all of us. I need God's grace. Not because of who I am, but in spite of who I am. He has given it to us. God's grace is available to all of us. <clears throat> and God does not have the attitude that many times we have, that we tend to have where we see people in categories or boxes or classes or distinctions of whatever kind. The miracle of the new birth, you see, changes our outlook. The major test of our faith, according to the book of James, is the reality, is the question, is the question does the reality of our faith demonstrate how I treat people, or is how I treat people changed? Am I doing what I know to be true? Am I treating people the way I want God to treat me? Do I treat people the way God has treated me? These are questions that I'm asking for myself and for all of us. How is it for us? Do we pass the test? <clears throat> If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. This morning we 
thank you for your word and how it instructs us and teaches us. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us, Father, to become more like you in this area of um, in social life, that we would treat others the way we've been treated by you, the way you want us to treat others based on the knowledge of you being the Lord of glory. I pray that you would continue to confront these areas in our lives and remind us and convict us and Father, help us to become more like you, to treat others with the love that we've received from you, to love the way you love. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to show us here in 2018 how that looks and how that is um, represented in our lives. And Father, again, we just ask your blessing and guidance on us as we go from here in the coming days and weeks. Show us how we can live in a way that's consistent with what we believe and teach. We ask it through Christ. Amen.